are going to continue our study through Genesis. If you remember last week, we had our barbecue and worship night. Um, if you remember the previous week, we were in Genesis chapter 20, and we talked about how God uh, can have favor on us even in the midst of our flaws. And we looked at Abraham and this encounter that he had with Abimelech. And once again, he goes to give his wife over to Abimelech. Despite all of that, despite Abraham in his sin, God still has favor on Abraham, protects Abraham, and not only protects him, uses him. And remember, Abraham was asked to pray for Abimelech, and through that prayer, God restored Abimelech and his um, servants and the women there that were barren because God had closed their wombs. Tonight, we're going to continue our study through Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. And finally, we're here, the moment we've been waiting for, for eight chapters, Isaac is born. The promise is going to be fulfilled. All the way from Genesis chapter 12, leading up to this point, the whole focus has really been centered around the promised son. And now here in this chapter, we're going to see this promise fulfilled, which brings me to the title of this message, The Faithfulness of God. The Faithfulness of God. Now, before we dive in, let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your promises and the way that you fulfill them, God, your faithfulness. Um, Lord, even when we're faithless, God, you're so good. Um, it's just part of your, your character. You're a promise keeper. That's who you are. You can't deny yourself. Lord, so I pray that you would speak, that you would remind each and every one of us through this text of how faithful not only you were to Abraham, but how faithful you've been to us, Lord. And we would reflect on that, God, and that would lead us to a place that we would be faithful ourselves. So I pray that your spirit would move in this time, that you would teach us what you want us to know, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So 25 years after the promise, remember Abraham was 75 when he was asked to leave his family, to go out to a place that he didn't know, to leave everything that he knew, to come out to this place. Part of that promise was that God was going to bless him and make him a great nation and that as we've studied through this section of scripture, he makes the promise more and more clear, specifically how he's going to fulfill that. And we know it was through this promised son, Isaac, which later we know the promised son is Jesus, all from this lineage. But all this time has gone by and God is faithful to do exactly what he said he was going to do. But it's interesting, God is faithful even when we just looked at the last chapter and Abraham just sinned, right? He just lied about his wife that she was just his sister, right? He almost gave her over to this king Abimelech. 
And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of Abraham's faithlessness, God still fulfills the promise. He still demonstrates his faithfulness, which brings me to the first point. He is faithful even when we are not. He is faithful even when we are not. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If you want to flip with me there, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful because that's who he is. He can't deny himself. His faithfulness is not always contingent upon our faithfulness. Now, we see there's certain times in Scripture that God's faithfulness does depend on our faithfulness. And then there's other times in Scripture where God's faithful even when we're faithless. And that's what we see here in this story with Abraham. Abraham just proved to be faithless. He didn't trust that God was going to protect him. He thought he had to protect himself by the way of lying. Nevertheless, God is faithful even when we're faithless. And it's really the difference between conditional versus unconditional promises. Right? We see throughout Scripture, um, there's conditional promises. That means that God will say things like, if you do this, children of Israel, then I will do this. good example of that would be Deuteronomy chapter 28. You could write it down if you want. He talks about the blessings that he'll bestow on the Israelites if they obey his commandments. And then later he says, if you don't obey my commandments, here's the curses that are going to happen. So that was a conditional, there was conditional blessings there that he talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's just an example. An unconditional promise would be one um, regarding uh, the Messiah. Any promises that were made regarding Jesus coming, that was an unconditional promise. That was going to happen no matter how man attempted to get in the way, whether purposefully or unintentionally. We see an example of that even in the beginning, the promise of the Messiah, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After the curse, God says basically, nevertheless, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see the promise of the seed through the woman in the Messiah coming, no matter what happens. That was God's plan. There was nothing that was going to change that plan. So this is a promise that is an unconditional promise that no matter what man did, God was going to fulfill the promise of Jesus coming. The point is that God is faithful because he's faithful. That's part of his character. That's part of who he is. He can't deny himself. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 21, verse 2, says, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Remember, he said, within a year, you're going to have this son, a couple chapters back. There was a specific time that God had given Abraham and Sarah by which he was going to fulfill this promise. Now, even in that, we see that there's some evidence of doubt in the last chapter because of how Abraham 
behaved, but God, his timing, it's absolutely perfect. God's timing is perfect. And God might have given you personal promises. You know, maybe it's the salvation of a family member. Maybe it's that you're gonna be married one day and have a family and it might look like that's impossible. It's never gonna happen. It's been so long, but God has a reason for the delay and his timing is perfect. I can give you an example of this in my personal life. See, when I first got saved, some of you know this, some of you don't. Uh, when I first got saved, the, the, the two prayers that I would pray every single day, I accepted the Lord by faith, but my mind was still battling with some things. The two prayers I prayed every single day for the first month were first, God, I pray that my brother, if I could spend eternity with anyone, that it would be my brother and that he would be in heaven with me. That's the number one prayer. Every single day I would pray that. Number two was, God, this whole science thing and everything I've learned in my secular studies and the Bible, okay, we can throw theory out the window, but where do these two things meet? God, because I'm struggling with this. I struggled with the creation story early in my faith. Now, this is what was so cool. God in his perfect timing, a month after praying this same prayer, these same two prayers, on a Wednesday night, my brother happened to come to service where I was in this ministry. That was the only way he could see me. So he came to see me and they did an altar call. And my brother, he goes to me, he's like, did you go up there? I was like, yeah. He's like, he's like, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm like, dude, I'm not pressuring you. That's between you and the Lord. He's like, all right, fine, I'm going. And he goes, and he goes up to the altar, and he accepts the Lord. And my brother sold out for Jesus, right? So I'm like emotional. I'm like, this is so awesome. God, number one prayer, you answered it. The very next day, a young man that I was living with just came to the house that week, and he hands me this packet. Uh, and he goes, I don't know why, but I feel like God wants me to give this to you. And he gives it to me, and it's the, because we had a school of apologetics there, Ravi Zacharias School of Apologetics at our church, and it was the week three curriculum that exactly broke down the story of creation and science and where it meets. And it was exactly what I was praying about when I saw it, I just bawled, just started weeping. I was like, oh my gosh, God, you answered my two biggest prayers on back-to-back -back days. Then that Friday, we did this thing once every four months. It was called a night of worship. That Friday night, we went to this thing. First time I ever had, had done anything like this. The whole sanctuary is filled. There's music for about two to three hours. And it was just all about worshiping the Lord. And I knew in that moment, God made himself so tangible to me. He said, I'm gonna answer your prayers, not in, my t not in your timing, but my timing. And your response to me answering your prayers in my specific timing is you are going to worship me with your whole heart. And the Lord just met me where I was at in such a tangible way. And I was sold out ever since. His timing was perfect. See, if God would have answered the first prayer the first week, and then the second prayer a few months later, it would have taken away from it. I would have been like, okay, cool. God answered the prayer. He saved my brother. Three months later, okay, I got some understanding about how creation, how science meets the Bible and all these different things. There's logical, reasonable explanations for all of this. But God did it in his own perfect timing. I had to wait. That month was tough. But God answered these prayers and it impacted me in a way that I never could have imagined had he 
answered the prayers in my timing. That's exactly what he's doing here. He answers or fulfills this promise to Abraham and Sarah in his own perfect timing, 25 years later. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 21, verse 3, it says, And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. So Isaac is finally born. Now this is interesting and I want to touch on it now because it's going to be very important in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac is a type of Christ. What do I mean by that? For those of you that aren't familiar with typologies, typologies, uh, basically it's a doctrine or theory concerning the relationship with the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament. Okay, so typically, and it can be various different things, typically it's surrounded by how stories in the Old Testament give us a picture of Christ. So we're going to see here, Isaac gives us a picture of what Jesus would be like. Joseph um, is a typology. He's a type of Christ. Joshua is a typology. David is a typology. Um, Samson is a typology. There's so many different typologies, okay? But follow me. You'll understand it as I say, you know, a couple of these things, but especially next week, it's profound how Isaac is a type of Christ. He's a picture of what Jesus would be. It's like foreshadowing. The Bible is trying to get the Jewish people, the Israelites, ready for the Messiah. They tell, he has so many different stories that point to Jesus. This is one of them. Now, Isaac, he was the son of promise, right? He was the seed, okay? He's the son of promise. He had a miraculous birth, right? Sarah, she's 90. She, she's, she's way past the age of childbearing, right? So this is a miraculous birth. Mary was a virgin, birth Christ, right? They're both referred to as the son of Abraham. If you look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter uh, 1 verse 1, you can look it up. They refer to Jesus as the son of Abraham. Both sons were born at specific appointed times. We see the one here uh, in Genesis chapter 21 verse 2, but also and referring to Jesus, we see it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Both moms were visited by angels and received messages about the son that would be born, okay? So, or birthed, sorry. Um, so we see that, that Isaac is a type of Christ. And I'm just going to put that out here now because when we look at this later in the next chapter, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the gospel in Genesis chapter 22. Picking it back up in Genesis chapter 21, verse four, it says, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. See, Abraham responds to God's faithfulness with faithfulness or with obedience. God displays his faithfulness. The child is born and immediately, just as God had told Abraham a few chapters back about circumcision on the eighth day, he does this and walks 
in obedience, circumcising Isaac, which brings me to my second point. God's faithfulness should lead to our faithfulness. See, Abraham, he responds to God's faithfulness by being faithful or walking in obedience. And when we consider the faithfulness that God's displayed in our lives, when we really reflect on it, when we really consider it, the only reasonable response is faithfulness. God, you've been so faithful to me. How could I not be faithful to you? And this is why Abraham is the father of faith because his faith in God is displayed through faithfulness or is displayed through obedience. It's not just because he believed God. Yes, that's part of it. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But we know that his belief in God led him to behave a certain way. And we see James use Abraham as an example in James chapter 1, verse 20, when he talks about the connection between our faith and works. If you'll flip with me there, James chapter 1, verse 20. Sorry, 2.20. He says, but do you want to... Know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? That's in the next chapter. This is just an example. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. What is he saying? God is looking for a specific type of faith. Just before that he says, you say you believe great, the demons say they believe. They know that there's a God. They say they believe and they tremble. Their faith doesn't look like anything. There's no substance, there's no evidence of it. There's no response to it. See, God's faithfulness should lead to our faithfulness. Our faith should look like something. Abraham, his faith looked like something. It looked like obedience. I can't say that I truly believe that Jesus came to this earth as God, lived a sinless life, died a death that I deserve for me so that I could have eternal life and that not affect the way that I live. If I truly believe that, then it's going to affect the way that I live. Just the same, we see Abraham responding to the faithfulness of God and fulfilling this promise. He responds in faithfulness by circumcising his son Isaac as God had commanded him. So, the problem on the flip side of that is, yeah, when we see God's faithfulness, that should translate to or um, result in our faithfulness, the problem comes when we go for periods of time when we're not seeing God's faithfulness, when God's faithfulness isn't apparent, when God seems so far away, 
or God seems to have abandoned or forsaken or he's just not, what happened? In the beginning of my relationship with the Lord, I saw God move in everything. He was always there. He was always making himself known. And now I'm at this point where, where is God? I haven't seen the blessing of the Lord. I haven't seen the faithfulness of the Lord. And we can use that as an excuse to lead us to disobedience and faithlessness. Wait, God hasn't been faithful to me. So if he's not working, I'm not working. If he's not doing anything, I'm not going to do anything. And that's not the right heart. That's not how we're supposed to respond. We see Abraham do that a couple times. God wasn't there around. He wasn't around for periods of 12 and 13 years. And we see Abraham act out and act up a little bit. You know, we can understand that and maybe even relate to it. But we can't allow our ability to see God's faithfulness lead us to a place of faithlessness. Just because you're not seeing God's faithfulness doesn't mean it's not there. It's there, you may just not be seeing it. See, sometimes God's faithfulness can be your trial. Sometimes God's faithfulness can be his silence. Why? Because we know that God uses silence so that we persist in prayer. God uses trials so that we grow in faith. So God's faithfulness doesn't always look like the fulfillment of his promise. And we have to understand that there's many ways that God displays his faithfulness. Nevertheless, in this specific setting, Abraham responds to God's faithfulness with faithfulness, and he acts in obedience, circumcising his son Isaac on the eighth day. Picking it up, verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. This time, she, it's not a sarcastic laugh. She's like, uh, wow, God really did this thing. This is a faith-filled, joyful laugh. She also said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Now we see um, Ishmael's believed to be about 17 right now. Um, and, you know, Isaac's a toddler and uh, probably about two or three, and Ishmael's picking on Isaac. It's like, come on, you're a 17-year-old, you're picking on this little kid, he's scoffing, he's mocking him, he's messing with him. Now, there's probably some jealousy in the household, right? Ishmael's the son of the bond woman, right? Isaac is the son of the legitimate wife, and Sarah. So there's probably some jealousy between Ishmael and Isaac, much like probably many of you can relate. We know our parents have their favorite child, right? We know they do. They might tell us all that we're all their favorites, but we know they have their, like there's no doubt in my mind who the favorite child is in my family. It is my sister. She's the only one that didn't completely blow apart her life, okay? My sister is the golden child. She's the favorite child. She was on the right track from the beginning, right? That's no doubt. My parents might tell me that I'm favored just as much as her. So me and my brother knew that when we were kids. And she's older than us and bigger than us, but we were too. 
and two little boys are stronger than one older girl. And we would do so many horrible things to her. I can't even tell you from the pulpit, but there was a, 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 definitely a scoffing, if you will, that took place. That's what's happening here with Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is picking on Isaac, and it's so interesting Paul picks up on this and later makes the connection that this is a picture of persecution. It's Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. If you want to hold your place in Galatians, we're going to be there in a moment. In Galatians chapter 4, um, we're going to go through a nice se- this nice little section here because it connects to the next thing that com- that's coming up. So uh, if you flip there, keep your place there. Look at this, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Even so it is now. He's talking about Ishmael and Isaac and the scoffing that took place. We'll look at this in context in a moment. But he attributes it to persecution. The sons of flesh persecute the sons of promise. The sons of this world will persecute the sons of God, the sons of promise, the sons that receive the promise. We can expect persecution as believers. So, those of you who have siblings, next time your sibling is scoffing you or mocking you or bullying you, say, praise God, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, I'm just kidding. That's not legitimate. But we see here the example that he uses is an actual event that takes place between two brothers, half-brothers, obviously. And look what happens in Genesis chapter 21, verse 10. It says, Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. This is so interesting and so important to understand. He says, cast out this bondwoman. This is what Sarah is saying to Abraham. You need to get rid of her. And we see in Galatians chapter 4, the parallel and lesson that Paul teaches us through this exact story as he's speaking to a church that struggles with legalism, he's saying that this bondwoman is a representation of the law. It's a representation of legalism. He says, you need to cast out the bondwoman, and I'll explain in detail. You need to cast out the bondwoman and be people that walk by faith, that trust God in his promises. If you'll flip with me to Galatians chapter four, if you're still there, is the third point. Cast out legalism and walk by faith. Let me explain. Cast out legalism and walk by faith. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Speaking of Hagar and Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Okay, so Hagar, Ishmael, born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman, Sarah, son of Sarah, Isaac, 
free woman through promise. He was born through promise, which things are symbolic. For there are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now which now is and is in bondage with her children. Okay, what is he saying here? He's saying Hagar the bondwoman, Ishmael the bond son, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is, all correspond to and connect to legalism. Why? Well, think about the story and what happened. See, Ishmael was a slave woman that they brought from Egypt, right? When Abraham went to Egypt when he was supposed to be in the promised land, they picked up Hagar, the servant from Egypt. Now she was in slavery. She was in slavery to Abraham and Sarah. Now because Sarah and Abraham weren't fully trusting the Lord, they tried to fulfill this promise in their flesh. They're trying to fulfill the word of God in their flesh. It's legalism. So we see Hagar, Ishmael, is a product of trying to fulfill the word of God in our flesh. We know we can't do that, okay? Mount Sinai was where the law was received unto Moses, right? God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. So at that point, everyone was under the law. Jerusalem to this day remains under the law. It's religiosity and it's legalism. He's saying that's all from Hagar. That all connects. It's bondage. It's the son of flesh. It's the law that was received at Mount Sinai. And they're all under the law, which is leading them to legalism. Then he says, Verse 25, Galatians 4, verse 26, sorry. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. He's speaking of heaven. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, then persecuted him who was according to the spirit, speaking of Isaac, even so it is now, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman, this verse we're talking about in Genesis, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. See, Hagar was the legitimate wife, right? Isaac was the promised son. God made that happen, not Abraham. That wasn't something that Abraham was trying to make happen in his flesh. That happened because Abraham had to walk by faith. He had to trust the Lord. It didn't happen when he thought it was gonna happen. For 25 years, it didn't happen. He had to walk by faith and have patience and allow God to fulfill his promise, not him to try to fulfill the promise in his flesh, just like the law. We can't fulfill the law in our flesh. Only the promised son, the Messiah, would be able to fulfill the law. That was obviously Jesus Christ. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit that we can follow 
the directions of the Lord, have the power, have the strength to follow every direction that he gives us. So he says here, cast out the bondwoman. What he's saying here is cast out legalism. Cast out the legalism that leads to bondage. Get rid of it. Don't take part in it. Quit putting yourself under the law. You're under grace. You're under the promise of God. Walk by faith and walk by freedom. Don't walk in legalism, which leads to bondage. And then he says in Galatians chapter 5, Verse 31, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to the yoke of the bondage of the law. Be freed in the promise fulfilled by God. Walk by faith. Experience that freedom. Don't go back to the legalism that leads to bondage. Okay. Genesis chapter 21, verse 11, it says, And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. See, Abraham, he still wants Ishmael to thrive. It's still his son. So he doesn't want Ishmael to die. He doesn't want to cast him out. He wants him to be a part of the family. Picking it up in verse 12, says, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be fulfilled. God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah. God tells Abraham to submit to Sarah in this section. Interesting, I'm just saying. We know wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, but we see right here, God saying, hey, this time you better listen to her, okay? This direction that he's, she's about to give you, you need to, you need to listen to what she has to say, or she already gave him. So he's saying, he has a good reason for this, right? The son of promise was Isaac. The son of bondage was Ishmael. The son of promise is going to be Ishmael, or sorry, going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. God knew what would happen if they stayed in the same house. It would be a house divided. And who knows? God knows we don't. Maybe Ishmael would have killed Isaac. I don't know. And they would have had another son. Who knows what would have happened? But God has legitimate reason and purpose for why he says, no, you need to cast out the bondwoman. We see there's a greater purpose because Paul connects it to legalism later, but God has a specific purpose as well. Because we can look at this and say, God, that's pretty harsh. You're going to allow this woman and this boy to be homeless in the wilderness but God has a reason for why he does what he does and there's so many spiritual lessons we can pull from this remember Ishmael is the son of flesh we just learned that from Galatians chapter 4 it was he was the son that Abraham produced in his flesh think about this Abraham loved his flesh and blood, and he wanted to keep it around. He wanted to keep it in the house. But this is a picture of the flesh. It's the same thing we would do with our flesh. We love our flesh. We want to pursue comfort and convenience and take care of our flesh, but our fleshly desires lead us to sin. God's like, no, 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 no. You can't have the son of flesh in the house. We need to get rid of the flesh. 
In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, he says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Don't even provide for the flesh. You need to get rid of this flesh because the flesh, it's going to grow. It's going to become something that takes control of your life. Not only do you not have to provide for it, you need to cut it off completely. And that's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They've cut it off. They don't entertain it. They've cut it off completely. And the flesh corresponds to our fleshly desires, right? It's our carnal desires. It's those things in our hearts and our minds that we want that we know that aren't from God. He says, cut it off, get it out of your house. Don't provide for it. In fact, crucify it. Get that thing out of here. Get him out. We don't want to take any part of that because it's going to continue to grow. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 13. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Remember, God said that he was going to bless Abraham's seed. Abraham took matters into his own hands, but God's still faithful. Ishmael's still a seed of Abraham, so he blesses him regardless. And on top of it, remember a few chapters back, Abraham was praying that God would bless and protect uh, Ishmael. Picking it up in verse 14, it says, um, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her, on, sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and, the pla- and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. This seems a little cruel from God, right? He sends her into the, he's like, yeah, cast out the bondwoman. Yeah, listen to Sarah, cut off the son of flesh. We see Abraham provides for him a little bit. But God allows Hagar and Ishmael to be in this very vulnerable situation, this life-threatening situation. But Abraham had to let go. He, loved, he had love for Hagar. He had love for Ishmael. He didn't want to let them go. They were part of his family. We don't want to let our families go. We want to do anything and everything we can to take care of them. But sometimes we just got to let them go and give them over to God. See, we can enable and we can try to comfort and be there for our family, family members sometimes. And you know what? Sometimes our enabling is killing them. That's what happened to me. My mom, she loved me so much. Picture of grace. My dad is truth. My mom is grace. Somewhere in the middle, they're kind of like Jesus. But my mom's so gracious, so loving, she would enable me. When I was my addiction, you know what happened? There was a time... God finally started to get a hold of me a little bit. I went to church a few times, still confused. This is before I got saved, uh, reading stuff here and there, but like still using drugs the whole deal. I knew that I was supposed to go to Calvary House. Listen to this story. It's crazy to me. I knew I was supposed to go to Calvary House. So I have an interview with the leaders of Calvary House. 
My mom is sitting in the next room. She overhears the meeting and it's like, no relationships with girls, no cigarettes. You get a $50 Walmart card a week. You're working 60 plus hours a week. You're waking up at four something in the morning. You're doing this and they're laying out the schedule. And in that moment, I was like, this is what I need. Like I need something just radical and different from the way that I'm living. So in that moment, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. You know what happened when I got in the car? My mom says, I would understand why you wouldn't want to do this. I heard the interview. I get why you wouldn't want to do it. That flesh in me, little Satan whispering here, sweet, she's going to give me another chance. I'm not going to go to this program if I can still chill at the house and, you know, have it, have it a little easier. You know what happened? Within two weeks, I overdosed two times. The second time that I overdosed, I remember laying there on the ground I was out for about three and a half to four hours. I came to consciousness and I knew, I'd overdosed in the past, but I knew in that moment, I had such fear covering me, I knew I should have been dead. And the first thing that came into my mind was God brought you back to life. God brought you back to life. I knew I should have been dead. How much I used and everything that happened, I was like, oh my gosh. And all it took was my mom, hey, it's okay, you know? I'll be there, I'll comfort you. She's trying to be a loving mom, but that enabling almost killed me. The next week I went to Calvary House. See, God is allowing Ishmael, sorry, Ishmael and Hagar to go on their own journey in the wilderness. Sometimes we have to allow our loved ones to find God on their own journey in the wilderness. The wilderness isn't fun. There's nothing really good there, but so many people meet God there. And if we can step back and allow that work to happen, sometimes that's the greatest act of love we could ever do for someone. And that's what God's asking Abraham to do here in this setting. He's saying, hey, don't worry about them. Let them go. I'll take care of them. Verse 16, it says, then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. This is Hagar and Ishmael. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Right when she's ready to give up. Right when she thinks he's going to die, I don't even want to see it. I'm going to get a bow shot's distance away from him. I can't see my son die. In that moment, that pivotal moment where death seemed inevitable, that's when God proves his faithfulness. Which brings me to my fourth point. God's faithfulness is made known in crisis. God's faithfulness is made known in crisis. He knows exactly what we can handle, but he often allows us to come to the end of ourselves before he intervenes. It's like, God, I'm dying here. It's like, yeah, I know. Don't worry, I'm not gonna let you die. Jesus does the same thing with the disciples. If you remember the story in Mark chapter four, we won't go in detail, but I'll just read it. This is a character of God. This isn't a character of God that I think any of us enjoys, but it's a character of God. It's a character of Jesus. And you guys remember the story. We were going through it in Matthew. Matthew accounts to it as well. 
Mark chapter 4, verse 35, says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, to the disciples, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Jesus is sleeping. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They literally think that they're dying. They think they're going to die. Jesus, you don't care. You're allowing us to be here on this boat getting ready to dive. The waves are literally coming in and flooding the boat. And then he says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And then they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, God so often will literally allow us to come to that place where we think we're going to die before he intervenes and reaches out his hand of grace and calms the winds and calms the storms and shows us that he was in control the whole time. You weren't going to die. I was never going to let you die. You were fearful, but I want to take that fear and turn it into faith. Now, the next time you're in that moment and you feel like you're perishing and you're going to die, you're going to remember, wait, God's faithful. I'm okay. I can handle this. And now he's produced a character in you that will prepare you for the greater challenges that lie ahead. And this is what he does. He almost allows Ishmael to die. Hagar nearly gives up hope. He gives her hope in the midst of hopelessness. But so often that's what God does. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 19, it says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So interesting that Ishmael, his mother, was an Egyptian born um, into bondage and goes back to the place of bondage in Egypt. And there's a lot there, but we don't have time to talk about it. Nevertheless, we see this lad, he grows. God fulfills his promise to Hagar. He's protected, but he's growing. The son of flesh... He continues to grow and he continues to grow and he continues to grow and continues to grow to the nation of Islam, the Arab nation. And we see to this very day that flesh that was to be cast out, to be cut off, did grow into something that's been enemies against God's people for all of history since this moment. Genesis chapter 21, verse 22 And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and um, Pichol, I'm guessing, the commander of his army spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. That's so awesome. That's so amazing to me, Abimelech. Now, some say this is the same Abimelech from Uh, Genesis chapter 20, others disagree. I think that he's 
uh, the same the same guy, the same character that's such a close time period that they're um, referred to uh, in Genesis 20 and both in Genesis chapter 21. But look at what he says to Abraham. Look at that last part of Genesis 22, verse 22. God is with you in all that you do. God's faithfulness is revealed in the lives of his people. God's faithfulness, he says, dude, God is with you in everything you do. God's favor is just on your life. I see God's faithfulness at work in your life. Do people say that about your life? Do people say, man, God's with you in everything you do. Like, I just see the hand of God in your life. I see God's favor in your life. I see his faithfulness displayed through your life. I look at that and I'm, man, I want, I want that to be said about me, that, that God is with you in everything that you do, that God's faithfulness is made known by just the way that he blesses you and the way that you live your life. It's so amazing that Abimelech, he notices this about Abraham. And then look what he says in verse 23. Now therefore swear to me, this is Abimelech talking, by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me into the land in which you have dwelt. So... (laughs) No surprise here, Abimelech um, was lied to in the chapter before, so now he's wanting Abraham to swear to him that he'll keep his word this time. And Abraham does, he says in verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Pekol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. So we see this covenant that Abraham makes with Abimelech and he gives him these lambs to seal the covenant so that nobody could say, hey, this covenant never happened. Abraham says, no, 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 he has my lambs. Obviously, this is evidence that the covenant did happen. And then look what Abraham does in verse 33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Look at what Abraham does here. He plants this tree. All these things just happened. His son was born and he plants this tree to remember that God is everlasting. No matter how much time passes, God is everlasting and his character is everlasting. He was faithful. He is faithful. He will be faithful. He was doing this to remember God's 
faithfulness. And that brings me to the fifth and final point. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Take time to reflect on and remember the faithfulness of God. All the things that he's done in your life anything that will bring you back to a memory of something that God did. Pictures around your house, great. Put pictures around your house of your baptism, of your marriage, of when your kids were born. That doesn't speak about what you do. That's, did. That speaks about what God did and how God was faithful and how God has provided and how, how God has blessed you. Do these things, anything and everything you can set up in your life, whether it's prayer journals or writing the scriptures down or, um, or memory verses on your walls, whatever you can do to remember the faithfulness of God, do it. If you want to plant a tamarisk tree, do that. That's what Abraham did, to remember the faithfulness of God. And we see Abraham do this many different times. He plants things, he puts things into place so that he remembers where God did specific things so that he wouldn't forget God's faithfulness and how he showed up in that specific way. Why does he do that? Because it's really easy to forget God's faithfulness. It's really easy to find ourselves in a rut or find ourselves in a a hard time or a hard situation and we begin to... uh, God, are you even real? You ever find yourself there? You're all Christians here. You can't say you don't struggle with faith. You ever go through such a hard time and you're like, God, are you even, I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. I thought you were all these different things and I'm going through it. I haven't heard from you. I haven't fill in the blank. And God, where, where have you been? To battle against that, because he's the everlasting God and his character is everlasting. He will always be faithful we got to put things in place to remember his faithfulness, to remember what he did. Why? Remembering God's faithfulness leads us to a place of gratefulness, and that gratefulness leads to our faithfulness. It could be sharing your testimony. See, every time I share my testimony, and that's why I did this strategically through this teaching, every time I share my testimony, I'm reflecting, I'm remembering God's faithfulness. It's like, dude, look what he did. It's not like everything's just smooth sailing all the time and faith is easy. It's not easy. Jesus said, narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Why? Because it's easy to divert and get off the path. What gets us off the path? When things get hard and we forget, of God, forget about God's faithfulness and what he did down the road earlier in our lives, but if we can remember God's faithfulness, it leads us to that place of gratefulness and that will lead us to our walk of faithfulness. And we just gotta remember, we just gotta reflect, we can't forget. So if it takes sharing your testimony, that's such a big one for me, because sometimes I forget what he did. If, it's, if that's a way for you to remember God's faithfulness, share it with people. Share it with somebody that doesn't know it. Share it with a coworker that's never heard it. Tell somebody about it. It will help you remember and reflect on. That will lead you to a place of gratitude and lead you to a walk of obedience. Bottom line, God is faithful. 
no matter how much time passes, no matter how discouraged you get, he is faithful, everlastingly faithful. Do whatever you need to do to remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, God, and to remember it, to reflect on it. Lord, you're amazing. You've been so good to us, even when we were faithless. Lord, you died for us while we were still sinners, God. And I pray that we would do whatever we can to remember your faithfulness, God, that we wouldn't forget it, that we would constantly reflect upon it. Lord, there's so much joy when we consider the things that you've done in our lives. God, and I just pray for each and every one of us, Lord. If it's been a while since we've shared our testimony with a stranger or with someone we barely know, pray that you would give us the opportunity to do that, Lord, that we would put things in place in our lives to remember all the good things that you've done for each and every one of us. Jesus, we love you so much because you first loved us. In your name, amen.